Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, that it is timeless and true. It connects with us on every level. It connects with us during a simple reading of the text, and we can gain comfort from the words. And Lord, we can spend a lifetime digging deeper and deeper into it and revealing more and more truth that we can add to a deeper and deeper level of our walk with you. We thank you for being all that we need, for being all that will ever fulfill and satisfy us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all seen renditions of uh, old wanted posters, right? Where the famous phrase is written on it, dead or alive. From what I could find, the last official wanted dead or alive poster was issued for Al Capone in 1929, following the deadly St. Valentine's Day massacre. The phrase on the poster, as most understood it, as most understand it today, is very misleading, though, when it says wanted, dead or alive. The government was not issuing an all-out blanket immunity on what would legally be murder of the suspect. What the phrase dead or alive meant on a poster like this, ideally, was arrest and prosecution to the fullest extent of the law. If the suspect resisted a citizen's arrest and was killed during that process of arrest, then the citizen making the arrest was not held guilty of murder. But one could not see this kind of poster, think, oh, here's an easy way to make thousands of dollars, grab a gun and lie in wait to kill the suspect in cold blood. That's not what the poster meant at all. You would then be held guilty of murder. They had to, you had to be legitimately attempting arrest to be covered under that. But God wants us to see this phrase, dead or alive, as dead and alive. And what in the world does he mean by that? One cannot be both dead and alive at the same time, right? That's impossible. Some of you might be sitting here and thinking, I know exactly where he's going with this. I've heard this message a million times. I know where he's going with this. He means being dead to sin and alive in Christ, right? I've heard that message a million times. I'm just going to start phasing out because I've heard this already, and hope nobody notices. But my question to all of us is this. Do we really know what that means? Do we really know what it looks like, and how it changes our everyday lives? There's a, a, a quote by a modern-day Christian, and I'm going to paraphrase it. And it says, if you stopped anyone on the street and asked them, what is a Christian? They would probably answer someone who asked Jesus to forgive them of their sin because he died for them on the cross. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. Most people know enough about Christianity to know that. But if you stop that very same person on the street and ask them, how does a Christian then live? I think he would be silent. How then does a Christian live? And why is that? 
It's because the world cannot clearly differentiate how a Christian lives differently than everyone else. While that believer meant that quote to be in connection with making social change, which is a part of it, I I want to expand that to encompass this whole theological and relevant issue of what should make everyday life different for the believer in Jesus as opposed to the rest of the world. And so the first point that we're coming to as we look at this, these last, two ver- these last three verses in the, in the fifth chapter of Galatians is the premise. Everything that's going to come after this is built on what we're going to talk about right now. The basis for the entire way a believer is to filter and process everything through as a child of God and a follower of Jesus is this. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, we read, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now we just finished a series on what? If you don't know, you weren't paying attention for about two months. We just finished a series on the fruit of the Spirit. If you remember from last week, I mentioned that just as the list of anti-spirit behavior that Paul described earlier in chapter 5 was inexhaustive, meaning there was no end to it, this list of the fruit of the Spirit is also inexhaustive. There's a whole way of life that God is transforming us into, and that is processing everything in life in a new way through the Holy Spirit's eyes. We are not to see ourselves as the same way that we were before committing our lives to God through Jesus. We need to see our lives as something completely new, completely different, completely new. That's where a lot of believers in Jesus get stuck. They don't see themselves as completely new. All they know is how the world does things. All they see is how the world does things. So they just do what the world does. But a lot of believers get get stuck and they don't see themselves as completely new. They see themselves as, insert your name here in the blank, with the way that they see things, respond to things, and process through things. But only now with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in there. But still the same way. This is an incredible truth that we must replace that with. That if there is going to be any growth, if there is going to be any testimony for Jesus, if there is going to be any transformation, you are an entirely new person now. You are not the same anymore. You have been made new. Everything. Your worldview, your outlook, your foundation, your strength, it's all new. Nothing is how it was before. Nothing is how the world does it and sees it. I love this description of this exchange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. I think a lot of people see him that way. How differently we know him now. And my question is, do, do you see him and know him differently now? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become what? A new person. The old life is gone. It's gone. It's not having anything to do with you anymore. A new life has begun. I love that exchange. 
A new life has begun. See, before the only way that we could process things or accomplish anything was through whom? Ourselves. That was the only way that we could process things or accomplish anything. It was only through ourselves. It was through a vessel that, while endowed with intelligence and skills, could only answer to its selfishness in the world. That's the only authority that could answer to. It's selfishness in the world. That didn't mean that we were stupid. It only meant that we were selfish. We only wanted to do what made us feel good on the inside. And that includes all the nice things we did for others. It made us feel good. Simply being nice is not what being a follower of Jesus is all about. See, selfish people are nice too. Selfish people still give lots of money to different charities. People who see nothing wrong with themselves go and build wells in impoverished countries. That's not what's different. See, a lot of believers in Jesus strip what has happened with them theologically from their lives and just try to live as a believer by being nice, doing nice things, and trying not to do bad things. And that's what being a Christian means to them. And they completely strip this whole new life that has begun uh, theologically from their lives. What a lot of believers do is that they unplug and disconnect the power of the Holy Spirit's transformation of their entire way of life and replace it with their previous way of doing things and seeing things. They think, well, that was neat when I gave my life to Jesus. The heavens opened, I felt uh, this weight lifted off of me. And then the very next day, they just replace what should have been their way of thinking with, I'm just going to keep doing things the way that I used to do them. But now I have Jesus in my life. Here's the problem. The whole way of doing things and seeing things, that whole way of doing things and seeing things is dead. It's dead. As Paul says here in verse 24, it's already been crucified. It's already been crucified with Jesus when we repented of our sins and selfishness and surrendered ourselves to God through Jesus. It's already dead. You can't do anything about it. It's already dead. And yet so many of us don't get that. We haven't embraced it. We haven't made it our way of life. Instead, we try to resurrect it. Why? Why do we try to resurrect it? Because we're scared. We're scared. We're scared of going through life any other way than how we think we know it, it should go. The world has tricked us into thinking that the way it does things is the only way to do things. But all of that has been crucified with Jesus already. It's been put to death, past tense. It's a done deal. It's already been crucified. It's already been put to death. If God put something to death, why should we dig it back up, put some new clothes on it, and say, this is my new life in Christ? Say hello to it. That doesn't make any sense, does it? If we are going to live in the Holy Spirit's power, we must leave what's dead 
dead. Thank you, Steve. We must leave what's dead, dead. If you think about it, that's an incredible revelation that God has given to us. God did not send His Son into the world to take fallen human beings and give them some nice life adages so they could be better people. There's nothing different about that. Everyone from Aristotle to Confucius to Buddha to Muhammad has done that. There's nothing different about that. No, God took it infinitely further than that and had his son be crucified and be put to death. Not to stay dead, as with everyone else, but to raise to life. That wasn't for his own good. Whose good was it for? Ours. That resurrected life introduced power into the human condition where there was none. That resurrected life introduced power into the human condition when there wasn't any. It put to death the power of the fallen human condition, including its sin, and replaced it with the power of the resurrection. Paul describes this truth elsewhere in in the letter to the Roman believers in Jesus. Here's what's already happened when we repent of our sin, Romans chapter 6. He says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. There we go again. Past tense. We're crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. What Paul is referring to here in Romans is the entire old self. The whole person. We made decisions before based on our pride, selfishness, fear, and worry. But Paul explains further in a few verses after that, so you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. The word for consider in the Greek is a term meaning to compute, to calculate, or to deliberately make a decision based on the facts one has. Sort of a scientific term. In other words, we have been shown and have been given the freedom to not make decisions based on the factors of the world anymore. What we are to base our decisions on are not pride, not selfishness, not fear, and not worry anymore. That whole outlook on life, again, has been put to death. Not to sleep to death, has been put to death. It is no longer available to base decisions on anymore. Maybe some of you used to do this. I like to listen to specific songs by way of someone uploading it to YouTube with the lyrics. It's a great way to listen to a song for free. And YouTube will allow it as long as you put some kind of disclaimer on it that you don't own the copyrights to the song. But it didn't used to be that way. At one point, YouTube didn't allow for any copyrighted material that wasn't your work to be uploaded by the average person. You'd search for a song and click on a video, and a window would pop up saying that that video, for those of you who remember doing this, was what? No longer available, right? It was gone. No longer available. No matter how much I wished it to be not that way, or try to get around it, that video was removed from YouTube's server, never to be accessed by anyone ever again. 
In the same way, our eyes have been opened. The way we used to do things are not the way it's supposed to be anymore. We have been given the freedom of something completely new. And that is to base our decisions on the fact that who we were before has been put to death. That has no power over us anymore. We have been made new. We have been made new. As one biblical scholar put it, and I quote, Believers already died with Christ, but they must consider themselves dead. Believers already died with Christ, but they must consider themselves dead. That's what Paul elaborates here on Galatians 5.24. Believers in Jesus must understand, see, and know that they have already been put to death at their conversion. And because of that, that carries over to how they see the sinful passions and desires that Galatians 5.24 refers to that war against their new life in the Spirit. And Paul's already referred to this. As we talked about last week, again, we are still in this war of the Spirit set against our selfishness and our selfishness set against the Spirit. But Paul goes on here in this verse to reveal that the sides are not equal in that war. The sides are not equal in that war. One side is already lost. One side, the selfish side and the believer, has already died. Take any war from history, knowing who won and who lost. As an American, would you knowingly then join the Axis powers during World War II? No. You know they lost. Why in the world would you go back and join that side? That would be pointless. In the same way, Paul describes this war between the spirit and the flesh, but then points out that the flesh is already lost. It's already been put to death in the believer's life. As such, believers in Jesus must base their decisions on knowing their selfishness and the power of that selfishness has already lost and has already been put to death. That side will never bring satisfaction, never bring fulfillment, and never bring, most importantly, life. Why can't it bring life? Because it's dead. No believer should ever think that the side of selfishness could ever bring anything other than that. Death and powerlessness. A lot of people think that God is this killjoy that doesn't want anyone to have any fun. But that's not the way to look at things at all. In fact, that's a very immature way of looking at things. The spiritual reality is that, as we talked about last week, there is this unseen war going on. God has put to death the world, its prince of darkness, and our selfishness that aligns itself right along with that. He has given new life, new freedom, and new victory to those who identify themselves with Christ's death and resurrection. Who, when they go outside for a run or do a bunch of yard work, or go to the gym and get all sweaty, that after they take a shower 
and get out, they put on those sweaty, crusty, stinky clothes back on. God's not a killjoy. He knows what he's done for us. And it makes just as much sense to base our worldview on life and all its facets on how it used to be and how the world does things as it does to put up those sweaty, crusty, stinky clothes back on. See things as a new creation, risen to new life, to process, see, do, and handle everything newly. That's freedom and that's life. That's why Jesus came to die. That's peace and that's joy. That's being both dead and alive. So we have the premise. Everything that we're talking about is based on. Secondly, we have the proof. So what does that mean? What does that theological truth mean in our everyday lives? It means this in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul says what happened inside of you is not disconnected from the rest of you. If you have been made alive, that is, you have been given life as a replacement for the flesh that has been put to death, that must be seen in our everyday decisions in our everyday life. Or else how else is it seen? If it's not seen in our everyday decisions, in our everyday life. Do we make our decisions based on faith or based on fear? Do we make our decisions based on peace or based on anxiety and worry? Do we make our decisions based on selflessness or based on selfishness? What do people see? Do they see this new life coming out of you? Would the average person who knew you and was asked the question, how does a believer in Jesus then live? Would, would a, the average person who knew you know how a believer in Jesus is supposed to live by looking at the way you live your faith? The term walk by the Spirit, when we read that, in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, is actually a military term. It doesn't, in the Greek, it's not as passive as it appears here in the English in verse 25. It's a military term. It does literally mean to walk, but a certain type of walking. This type of walking, as described here by this term, is to march. To march in line and march in time behind the commander. That's what this term means. If we live by the Spirit, let us also march behind the Spirit. So in keeping with this illustration, the commander is the Holy Spirit. To walk by the Spirit literally means to march in following him, again, right in keeping with this theme of war that Paul has been using. To march behind the Spirit means you follow his every order without question. It means you keep up with where he's going. It means you don't take a break, get distracted, 
wander off or decide you don't want to listen to them or jump over enemy lines and join the other side. It means you may or may not know where he's going, but you follow him anyway. You still march behind him anyway. It means that you trust that no matter where he's going, you know that where he's going will ultimately be, be, be what's best for you and be what's best for God's kingdom. We have had our old selves put to death. That is not a leader worth following, to say the least. We have been given life by marching behind the one who knows what's best. Paul gives us what we can't be following anymore, but that doesn't leave us wandering. He tells us what we can't be following at behind anymore, but doesn't leave us wandering. At conversion, Paul reveals that we immediately get a new commander to replace the old one. Again, like we talked about last week, a positive command is always more effective than a negative one. Instead of leaving it as, don't follow your flesh anymore because that's dead, he very well could have just said that and left it at that. Don't follow your flesh anymore because it's dead. But then he adds to it, but replace it with marching behind the Holy Spirit and where He's taking you. If we focus on making sure we're in step behind the Holy Spirit and God's Word, you know what happens? We won't have time to think about trying not to satisfy our selfishness. Because we're focused on trying to keep up with the Holy Spirit. Paul ends this section with an example relevant to the situation he's writing to about what marching behind the Spirit doesn't look like within the context of the body of Christ or the church. He will get more into what marching behind the Spirit does look like within the context of the church in our passage next week. But for now, he's going to give an example of how it doesn't look what it doesn't look like in the church. So here's what it doesn't look like in the context of the church in verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. In this context, Paul is rebuking what the world is seeing of what's going on in these Galatian churches. What are they seeing? They're seeing boasting. They're seeing them challenging one another. And they're seeing them envying one another. Remember, the original context of this letter in the first place was to rebuke the Jewish Christians for trying to coerce the Gentile Christians into following the Jewish law for their sanctification and rebuking the Gentile Christians for listening to them and losing what was the whole point of God's grace towards them. Legalism, which was at the root of this dilemma, will always, always, always facilitate competition. You didn't do this right. Yeah? Well, you didn't do this right. It also leads to the factions and divisions that Paul was warning against earlier in this letter. Paul is telling those who made up the Galatian church as a whole, knock it off. 
This is what the world is seeing, portrayed by you who claim to be children of God and therefore brothers and sisters in the faith. This is what they're seeing. Boasting, challenging, or better translated, negatively provoking one another and envying one another. Remember, when we talked about this, that word, envy, it's not just being jealous of someone else. It's a complete decay of an embittered mind that takes pleasure in the downfall of someone else. In short, what Paul is rebuking the Galatian churches for here is that the world was seeing that there was no love being shown. There was no love being shown. There was, for all intents and purposes, a complete lack of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul had just described being seen in the Galatian churches because of, their, of this source of disunity. They weren't being seen. There was no unconditional love. There was no rejoicing. There was no even-keeled peace. There was no patience as a way of life. There was no goodness-informed kindness. There was no confident faithfulness, gentleness of anything, or spirit control. All of that had been replaced by selfish ways of looking at things and dealing with things. And Paul says, because this is what God has given to you, a completely new way of living life and handling situations, don't you ever portray anything other than that. Legalism was only one manifestation of disunity. There are other forms of disunity. The world is not going to want anything that they already have. The world is not going to want anything that they already have. They already have bickering and arguing and selfishness and brokenness and disunity. They already have all of that. They don't want more of that. If they see the only place where that is not a possibility, also portraying that, what hope is there? What hope is there for them? At the only place for that not to be portrayed, the bickering, the arguing, the complaining, this disunity, also portraying that, what hope is there for them? Are we portraying a new way of life to this world around us? A completely new way of life to this world around us? Or are we just giving them more of the same? Because we're doing what they're doing. And we're handling things the way they would handle them. And we're seeing things the way that they see them. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about handling stressful situations. I'm talking about dealing with difficult people. I'm talking about being caught in scary circumstances. I'm talking about facing temptation head-on in the heat of the battle. You have a new life. Something new has been given to you. Do not handle any of those situations the way that you used to handle them or the way that the world handles them. You have been given a new way of handling them and facing them. Let us show the world something different. Let us show the world something new because that indeed is what God has given to us. 
Let us be showing the world something new that they cannot get anywhere else. They just cannot get it anywhere else. Live the new life that has been given to you in every area, marching behind no one but the Holy Spirit. Live and show the world what it means to be both dead and alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning with your word. We thank you for the eternal truths that are in it. And we only need to, to dig out. Lord, we thank you that you make every part of your word relevant, applicable, powerful, and life-giving to us. I pray that we would see the newness of life that you have given to us, that we would embrace it, that we would make it who we are, because that is indeed who we are in reality. And that we would, that we would consider ourselves dead, We've already been crucified with Christ and see ourselves as already being resurrected into new life and seeing every situation through those eyes. I pray that that would then flow over as a blinding, bright testimony to this world around us that only knows brokenness and only knows hurt and disunity. Lord, let us, give us the power to show them something new as we walk in the newness of the life that you have given to us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.